Greetings, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Would you please meet me in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. Continuing to experience Advent together, and now we come to this brilliant song that Mary sings, that she announces and heralds. And around this time of year, I think many of us are really comfortable and really enjoy singing songs about being called blessed uh, for generations or rejoicing and magnifying in the Lord. And that's good. We're less enthused, though, I think, about singing songs about toppling earthly powers and seeing the rich uh, not prosper, but actually crumble and fall and, and be turned away empty and, and this song, Mary's song, the Magnificant, as it's known, is actually both. And, and this uh, passage here in uh, Luke 1, 46 through 56, is actually the longest recorded a collection of words, uh, monologue, statement from a woman anywhere in the New Testament. And it's an unmarried woman. It is a, a young woman. It's a poor woman at in light of all of that. So, so it's this revolutionary, uh, worshipful woman, not just this nice song about, about obeying God, though, though that's what Mary is confessing. It's also Mary almost enlisting herself in this kingdom work that she knows this baby boy now growing inside of her is going to bring about in the world. And so it's incredibly uh, hopeful and powerful and, and yet it's also subversive. It, it comes uh, at us and to the world in a completely uh, unexpected way. And, but that's really what we need to talk about. We need to talk about this power that Mary is singing about, this kind of power that is altogether different than any earthly power, which is simply the power of God. Because what, what Mary uh, sings about, what Mary speaks about, what Luke records here in chapter 1 is that, is that God's love and God's power reverses the powers of this world. And, and notice he doesn't do this. God doesn't do it by force, but he does it by love. That the reversal of the powers of this world takes place not by matching, if you will, the, the same forces that are at work against the kingdom of God and his people, but through a completely and subversive different kind of way, through the power of love. And what I'd like to look at Today, through this particular passage, I think what, what we'll see is we'll see the way that this power uh, reverses the powers of this world. We'll see three different places, or we'll see where this power is reversed, and then we'll look more closely at what this power actually is. So we'll look at the way of this power. We'll look at the, the where, the places that this power is being reversed, or rather God's power is reversing the powers of this world. And then lastly, we'll consider more acutely, more specifically, the nature of this power of God that Mary uh, sings about, that Mary rejoices in. And so having heard this passage, let's go to God and pray and ask for his help. So God, we do submit ourselves to you. We do come before you uh, and, and ask for your help. Help us in the middle of a, a season, in the middle of a, a people, in the middle of an entire globe that is drawn to different kinds of powers. Help us to know in this Advent season what it is to wait upon the power of God, what it means for us to not take hold 
of our own futures, our own provision, our, our own uh, identity, but truly to, to know as Mary will be used by your spirit to guide us today, to know uh, that, that, that that perfect power, that, that perfect love that you have that transforms us by the renewal of our mind and it transforms the world around us. And so help us to, to believe that, help us to see that, help us to be obedient in that. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, Mary, we need to get a little bit more familiar with her as she'll be the voice that we hear from today to be sure God inspiring her, Luke and Luke recording her words here. But we need to know a little bit about Mary to understand what exactly she's saying and why she might be saying it. So Mary comes from uh, this town of about 200 people uh, in the first century, a town called Nazareth. And it was a very unknown or really remote kind of town that we might call a flyover town or just a pit stop town, the town that you go uh, on your way to, or you stop on your way to where you're really going, a place that you get gas and snacks back in the car, back on the road, trying to make good time and not you know, pull your hair out and keep your kids quiet and all of that, all those things that come with the road trip. You, you pull into these different kinds of towns that, that for whatever reason, we, we may overlook or you and I may overlook as we travel from one city to the next. And yet it's this particular town, like maybe a road trip that was along a trade route from uh, Egypt to Damascus. And so even though it's a remote town, an unknown town, uh, it still would have had uh, many influences and many uh, people within Nazareth would have had a good understanding of the powers of the Roman Empire that were constantly passing through uh, Nazareth. So so even though Nazareth is, is kind of uh, off the beaten path, if you will, it still is in the shadow of the Roman Empire. And this, no doubt, would have affected the way that Mary understood herself and her people and the world around her. So, so she's familiar with worldly power. She's familiar with what is at work in the world, not only through her reading and understanding of God's word, what you and I would call the Old Testament, but, but just in looking at the world around her. And so as, as we looked at, as we considered last week, it's to that town, it's to this woman, it's to Mary, that the angel of the Lord Gabriel comes and says, tells her that she's going to be a mom. Specifically, she is going to be the mother of the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus Christ. And if you remember, when Mary asks, how, how in the world am I going to be a mom um, when I have never been with a man? How am I going to be a mom when I'm a virgin? Uh, Gabriel explains to her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, would overshadow her, and that she would be with child. And so sometime between hearing that news and then visiting her relative Elizabeth, who is also with child, who would become known through history as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, she uh, sings this song. She uh, communicates this reality. She sort of responds to everything that has taken place. And that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary's song is historically known by its Latin title or Latin name, the Magnificant, which is the word for magnify. And she begins this song by doing just that, by magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in the God who she says is my salvation or my Savior. She does this, notice, not, not just with her lips. She actually says from, from the depths of her soul, from her spirit, from her soul, she is announcing these things. So she's speaking like a Hebrew in the, from the very core of who she is. 
she rejoices. She's not being emotive. She's not just responding to what she's feeling. She is speaking from the depths of her identity that she rejoices and she worships God. But we, we have to understand because we know her story and because we know the context here, she's not rejoicing per se just about becoming a mom. It's not just about her. It's not just uh, uh, about her situation. Uh, let's, let's keep reading on so that we, we understand more. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on, my, or on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And so she, she goes on, but, but Mary uh, gives her logic or like the basis for her praise right here, that it's about God, who, who ha, what he has done, who he is, and because of what specifically he has done for her. He, he looked at her, she says, in her humble estate, and he's done great things for me, Mary sings, where Mary says, but, but also his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So, so Mary is not just seeing this about herself. She's also considering the people that she's a part of. Remember, Mary is not married, and, and she wasn't asking or desiring to become a mom, not like uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. So, so God has brought all of this to her by his will and not by hers. This is, this is something she is submitting to, not something that she has asked for. Therefore, it's obvious, it has to be obvious to us that her joy is not due to the fact that a baby is coming only. That, that can't be it because that's not what she longed for. But rather, she is responding because who this baby is. Are we picking up on the difference? That, that she is not thrilled only because she is going to become a mom. She would have been terrified 13, 14, 15 years old, some, something in that. Though I'm sure there was something in her naturally, instinctively rejoicing in being a mom, that there, there is more here going on than just about motherhood. She also is celebrating about who this baby is proclaimed to be. And not just for her, be, because of who she knows this child is going to be or who this child already is, she rejoices on behalf of her people. And we'll consider that a little bit more about how and why Mary would have this sort of communal or even corporate response, that she's part of this, this family, part of this community, part of this nation and network of people. So she's, she's responding not just as an individual, but as, as an individual who's part of a people. And she's saying that what she has personally experienced, and as she has personally experienced this news, is then the same reality than of what God's people holistically are either about to go through or have already gone through. So she's receiving this individually, but she's also, as she's individually receiving it, she's receiving it for her people, that through the baby then that's inside of her womb, the entire community of faith will be blessed and will receive mercy. And in the Messiah, they are all then, not, not just Mary, but they are all, all of Israel, all of God's people are being seen in their humble estate. And what is God doing? He's lifting them up. God's lifting up his people from their humble estate. Why? Because she and all of Israel know that, that this is what is promised, that this is why the Messiah was coming. The Messiah was coming to lift his people, to restore their joy, to bring the fullness of God's ancient promises to fruition for his 
people. In fact, they had been enduring 400 years of silence from God, where a prophet and a word from God was not given. And so they're waiting in this space for the deliverer to come, for the Messiah to come. And so Mary is responding to that. So, so Mary and Mary's people have been waiting for generations, for oppression to cease, for silence to stop, for liberation to take place. And so naturally, she receives and celebrates this as someone who is part of a humble people who are now being exalted. So she knew and believed that this is what was going to take place through the Messiah, that, that God exalts the humble. God exalts the humble. And this is how the first instance that we see that the power of God, the love of God, the grace of God that Mary did not ask for, but that was bestowed upon her by the will of God is a way in which that God has begun to reverse the powers of this world, that the humble are being exalted. So Mary has been lifted by God from obscurity, she says, from insignificance into the very center of his will. And what she experiences personally She's again recognizing as part of a people, that she's rejoicing that all of the things that she knows to be true about the Messiah are now coming coming about in this this wonderful gift of her son, this wonderful baby boy, who is also the eternal son of God, the Messiah, that, that God now through him is going to exalt the humble. However, in doing so, in exalting the humble, the the opposite must also be true. You see, when God exalts the humble, he is at one and the same time humbling the proud at the, at the exact same time. See, when God's justice comes, it always cuts both, both ways. It afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. This too then is part of what Mary is celebrating. She's not just celebrating her people being lifted up and God uh, uh, exalting the humble, but she is also celebrating that the proud are going to be humbled. Look at Luke Uh, 1 verse 51. He has shown strength, Mary continues, with his uh, arm. He has scattered the proud in the the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent sent away empty. So let's make sure God not only lifts up his people, He not only lifts up the humble, but he lays to waste the enemies that have come against him and those who have unrighteously opposed his people. Now, you may be thinking, and then it would be natural to say, well, why does anyone have to lose out? Why does anyone need to lose out when the justice of God comes? Why can't everyone be exalted along with the humble? Why, Why does someone need to lose and someone need to win? In fact, I think some of us, this is our primary reason for why we have a hard time believing and trusting in the God of the Bible because of his judgment and because of his wrath. In, in other words, we envision a world. We envision a world where the proud don't have to be humbled for the humble to be exalted. We can and we all should be blessed. And perhaps you believe we should all be blessed. We should all be exalted. We should all be forgiven. And that, that therefore it doesn't have to be this zero sum game, so to speak, that everyone can be lifted up and enjoy this joy and celebration that that Mary is speaking about. But this is an extremely naive and limiting view of the human heart. It doesn't hold water. See, what we've been learning about in our time in Romans, I, I hope along with many other things, is that the human heart wants to rule itself. The human heart desires to be in control and desires to be central. 
That's why Paul says, and rather tells us, that in our ambition, we suppress the truth and ignore God. See, our hearts can't handle the truth, and therefore it suppresses. We suppress the truth. And Luke, even, in in chapter 1, here through Mary's words, is bringing up the matters of the heart. He's making sure that we, we... don't, don't miss this. And Mary is centering what she's saying on this, that the issue then with pride and being proud is not only its effect on the humble, but also its corruption of the soul and, and every system that that soul touches. See, pride is, is the rejection of God and the centering of self. And, and, and the self cannot take that. You and I cannot bear the weight of being in control of our lives or being fully autonomous and being divine and being one who is at the center of even our own life, let alone the lives or system of another. Another way of considering this is that the proud heart is is the heart which has not been offended by God. Stay stay with me in this. See, See, the cross of Jesus Christ is actually offensive. It's offensive to us. It, it, it cuts against the grain of what we believe and think about ourselves and the comfortability that we find within our sin. Think about it. Until you have been so offended by the gospel that you admit your unworthiness, your brokenness, your sin, your shame, you can never receive his love. You can never receive the good news until you hear this bad news. Or as Jay-Z would put it, you cannot heal what you do not reveal, Right? That so when, when we downplay brokenness, when we downplay the brokenness of the heart and entertain this illusion of a world where no one has to pay the penalty for sin, where, where everyone can, can enjoy a life without consequence, see, this begins to take a, a, a kind of root in our, our world that brings about corruption and chaos and brokenness. It, it begets more brokenness. See, in our time, what this looks like is that we cast this high view, perhaps, of love and tolerance but, but in truth, tolerance is love without truth. Love is, or rather tolerance is love without truth, which is really no kind of love at all. And so church, it, this, is, this should be really good news to us that God does not tolerate us. He redeems us. Am I preaching to you yet? He does not just receive us as, as we are. He transforms us. He forgives us. He heals us. He restores. He does a work by first making sure that we understand the brokenness and sin and shame and offense that we have been to a holy and righteous God. You see, until you have been offended by God, your heart is still proud. And when the proud heart shows up, when it is revealed, when when it comes against God, it will be humble. This is what Mary is celebrating. This is what Mary is hoping in. I want to take a brief moment to make sure that this really sort of takes root in our hearts and minds. And, and just, albeit briefly, I, I want to explain how this shows up in everyday ways in our lives, or, or perhaps ways that we may not totally grasp how this is totally and, and truly connected, uh, specifically as it relates to gender-based violence, which I know for many in our church and many people that you're connected to, this is not just an idea uh, this is a, a story. This is your a dark experience and pain that you have gone through. And so I, I'm just going to take a moment to walk through this a little bit so that we understand the severity of believing that a world can all be exalted and that, that humility or, or uh, God bringing uh, the, pro- the proud to humility is not necessary. See, think about the perpetrator of these kinds of violent acts. 
and the corruption of the heart that takes place that leads to such an evil act and power and pride. See, when a survivor comes forward with their story of abuse and mistreatment, uh, what does it look like to love them? What, is it, what, is it, what does love look like for someone like this? Think, think about it. So in, in sort of common parlance, we, we, we should believe, we should trust, we should hear their story. Absolutely. But, but is it enough that we uphold them and empower them and with the Lord see that they are lifted out of the humble estate that they have been forced into? No, that's, that's not enough. This is incomplete love. You see, love must also stand the gap that has been caused by the injustice and by the violence. See, then the fullness of love includes pursuing justice and reversing the powers. The one who has been forcibly humbled, so to speak, must be exalted, must be lifted up, must be cared for. And the one who has exalted themselves over another must be humbled. See, the one whose power has been taken away must be empowered again. And the one who's misused their power must have their power taken away. Or as uh, Rachel Dennenhollander, a survivor and activist, has put it, that she calls for holding the straight line in the midst of the battle. Do, do you see? This, this is where I think it, it comes into focus for us. For the humble to be truly exalted, the proud must be humbled. For the humble to be truly exalted, the proud must be humble. And, and in a way of putting this biblically or in spiritual language is that salvation always implies judgment. That the God who saves is also the God who at one and the same time is bringing judgment. And that's what Mary is talking about. She's talking about this power of God that exalts the humble and humbles the proud at the exact same time through this child that is now growing inside of her. So Mary knows and even rejoices that as her people are rescued from despair, their oppressors and their enemies receive their righteous penalty, that the proud are scattered, she says, that the mighty are dethroned, that the rich are found wanting. Now, these all, as, as she recounts these three different things, these are all the very opposite. Of, of what we would expect and what we believe that pride and might and riches promise the heart. I wonder if you know that, that, that uh, pride and that these powers make promises to your heart. They do. These, these different earthly powers make promises to your heart. See, self-glory or pride promises the power of control. Pr pride says there's no one like you. You got this all on your own. And you got this like nobody else. Earthly might promises the power of significance. Might says that, that you matter and you'll never be forgotten. Thirdly, money or riches promises to protect us from weakness or being seen as weak, like being hungry or needing shelter or, or not having the latest phone or recent technology. See, money says you'll want for nothing and you'll be somebody and you will never be seen as weak. Money says, I'll make you strong. See, see, pride and, and earthly might and money, the powers of the world make promise to you. And in God's judgment on this pride, he reverses the powers. In other words, the very thing that you think you're going to get from those earthly powers, you have taken away. All the promises that they have made you are proven to be shallow and fleeting. And so in, in doing so, Mary is announcing a kind of power that is not only unrivaled in this world, 
but a power that is unlike any other in this world. That's the power of God. See, God's power, unlike the powers of this world, world always delivers on his promises. God's power leads to trust and surrender and union and belonging. It does not betray you. God's power defines eternal significance. It doesn't take it away from you. God's power always satisfies you. It doesn't leave you more hungry. That's the power of God. That's the power of God that, that, that again, Paul writes about in Romans chapter one is the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God. And this reversal of powers is taking place. And it's not an illustration. Too, too often we take Mary's words as sort of spiritual language or as some allegory that she is speaking about, but she's speaking literally about what she has experienced. See, Mary visits three particular contexts. She, she goes to these places where God's power is doing this reversing work, where the humble are being exalted and where the proud are being humbled. She goes to politics, she goes to economics, and she goes to society in general. So we've looked at the ways that God's power reverses the powers of the world, that, that God humbles the proud and he uh, exalts the humble. And, and now we're going to look and see where this is actually taking place, at where Mary is acknowledging these three different places or contexts where God is reversing the powers. See, we need to understand something about God's power in, in general. As we look at it through the scriptures, that God's power is never merely for show. He's never just trying to impress you. This is true with the miracles of Jesus, that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's not so, you know, we just go, whoa, that's so cool. Can you believe that he did that, right? It's not just to be shock and awe. Jesus is always teaching through that. And, and, and the Lord is always saying something. He's demonstrating not just his strength and limit, limitless power to, to wow us. His power is transformative. It's not just a spectacle. And so the effect of the powers of God and the power of God is meant to transform the heart and transform the world that surrounds whatever work or act of God he is bringing to bear or he is demonstrating in a particular time. However, when we look inside uh, the human heart, we see the tendency instead of being transformed by the powers of God and submitting to the powers of God and trusting and loving the powers of God, we are drawn to earthly powers. These are earthly powers that we've mentioned and not to God's power. Therefore, when we look at human systems and societies, what we see are similar patterns that are taking place in our hearts, are taking place in, in the larger setting, again, in, in, in politics and in uh, economics and in society in general, where we are, are choosing the greatness of human power and of human ability and not surrendering and trusting and loving the greatness of, of God's power. This is what uh, a group of women known as the Mothers of uh, Plaza de Mayo encountered in 1977 in Argentina. Their, their sons went missing. And common understanding was that they had been abducted by the government. And in, in fact, history would show that, that during this particular time, 30,000 Argentinian sons were massacred during what later was called the Dirty War. In 1977, though, this group of 14 mothers, they began to march. While many people ridiculed them, while many people just simply ignored them, and believed them marching to try to find their sons to understand what happened to their children, that they were wasting their time. And since that, that day in uh, 1977, these mothers have continued to march. For over 40 years, many of them now in their late 80s 
and 90s, they have marched for justice on the streets of Argentina over 2,000 times. And in those early days, up until this day, as far as I'm aware, they carried signs when they were protesting, when they were marching with the very words that we have read today, with Mary's words of the Magnificat. These were their marching orders. See, these women did not see, these Argentinian women did not see these words as merely spiritual or wishful thinking. These were the powerful words that were teaching them hope, that were empowering their souls to know that a reversal of powers could take place in their words, in in their world. And in response, the Argentinian government banned the words of the Magnificat from being publicly displayed. Now, why did these women find such solace in Mary's words? Because these women had been humbled and Mary's words were their exaltation. Why did the Argentinian government cower at the words of Mary? Because the government, this particular government, had exalted themselves over the powerless in their country and over the powerless in their care. And Mary's words vowed that they would be humbled. They both, in both on both sides of this, the, these women saw that and, and trusted that the humbled would be exalted and that the exalted would be humbled. And the, the government understood that the exalted would be humbled and that the humble would be exalted. And this is what God does. And so he, he does this, though, in three distinct spaces. Look how these words are not merely spiritual sentiment, but they're kingdom realities showing up. Look, look again, verse 51. He, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Keep, keep reading. And the rich he has uh, sent away empty. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary covers three places. Remember, we've looked at the, the, the way that God reverses powers. And now we're looking at where he does that. Where does God exalt the humble? And where does he humble the proud? In, in politics, in economics, and in society, or, or a nation, in a national sense. Let's, let's consider the first, that God reverses uh, powers politically, that God reverses political powers. Look again at verse 51 and 52. The strength of his arm has scattered the proud. Specifically, look what it says, displacing proud rulers and kings. So remember, Mary is in the shadow of the Roman Empire and is part of a people who had this long-awaited hope of a messianic king that would come and is is speaking literally, Mary is, that God reverses the powers of the political realm. Why? Because he controls them. And, And Mary would have known this because Mary knew the story of when Saul was replaced, the king of Israel, with David. She she was about to experience how Herod would be dismantled. And she had seen through her life, and we have seen in our lives, and will see in the fullness of time, that Satan is defeated. In fact, Mary's son would be the one to bring this kingdom reversal, this power reversal about. Not only so, but as of 2016, 1,000 of the torturers from Argentina, whom these mothers marched against, had been tried, and 700 of them have been sentenced. See, this is a work of God who reverses powers. Because 
Uh, he humbles the proud, the proud politician, the proud government powers, the proud, proud government system. Mary tells us that God also then exalts those who are in humble estate. In other words, those who were rep- oppressed and mistreated find justice. See, political might, especially to the neglect of the powerless, will never lead to human flourishing. This is what Mary is talking about. This is her revolutionary cry, her revolutionary anthem, if you will, that she sings about. So this is the first place in the political realm. Secondly, God reverses economic powers as well. Look at verse 53. The exaltation of the humble and the humiliation of the proud also happen as it relates to money and economics within the kingdom of God. This is what led to the Argentinian ban and and similar restrictions of Mary's words, not only in Argentina, but also in Guatemala in the 1980s and in India under the uh, Great Britain's Britain's occupation there in 1858 all the way to 1947. Now, Now, why? Why would these kinds of governments try to bring this kind of restriction, not only holistically, but specifically to the words of Mary they outlawed? Because Mary is celebrating God's favor for the poor and the needy, that he sees them, that he sees them. God satisfies the hungry. He sends the rich away, Mary says, unsatisfied, empty. Do you see the reversal, church? What God does is disrupt the patterns of living, which we believe and we build our lives upon that those things control our future. We find our well-being and money all the time, don't we? And Mary is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. God reverses the power. See, the rich, biblically, is not just about those who have money. It's about those who have this sense or this idea that ultimate worth and ultimate security and ultimate power come from money. Therefore, you can be the rich biblically and not have any money if you are believing and trusting that your only hope is financial gain. But at the same time, what is most common in in the scriptures are those with resources, those with money can become deeply dependent and in love with making money and can't envision happiness without it. This is what Mary speaks about, and this is what all of the scriptures testify to. And Jesus even says, you cannot serve God in money. You have to love one or love the other. You cannot love and trust both. That's who Mary says, will be turned away, empty-handed, and completely unsatisfied. And those who hunger and those who trust the Lord will be filled with good things. This is her song. Not only so, God doesn't just reverse the powers politically, God doesn't just reverse the powers economically, but he also reverses the powers socially or in society. Look at verses 54 and 55. See, Mary also rejoices that social powers have been and will be upended by God. Remember, Israel was a chosen people. But they hadn't been chosen for their own glory. They'd been chosen for the glory of God. In other words, for his purposes. That, that, that is, they, they were always meant to be a people of distinction, set apart to demonstrate God's grace, not to demonstrate their own aptitude, their own power, their own superiority. That's why uh, this word remember is so important that Mary uses. When, when we look at the, or think about the word in the English language, remember, it's just sort of mental recall of an experience or information that uh, either something we went through or something that we previously knew. But in the Hebrew consciousness, to remember was much more about identity. 
This is why God constantly, after he performed uh, a divine work or, or demonstrated his power, he told his people, he instructed his people to set up altars so that they wouldn't forget. Why? Because you think about it, something that incredible, like walking on the Jordan on dry land or the parting of the Red Sea or something like this, you would have a hard time forgetting that. But, but God wasn't just saying, I don't want you to mentally lose it, but I want you to remember this is who you are. You are my people and I am your God. So remembering biblically is not just about pulling up information. It's about knowing who you are in relationship with God. And so when Mary speaks about God and calls for him and even celebrates that he has remembered his people, that he has remembered his promises, that he has remembered his mercy, what what she is celebrating it is that God is the centerpiece of their social understanding, of their ethnic identity, of their personhood. She's saying this is where true power lies. And th- that then when, when Israel remembers this in, in the Hebrew sense, they will be protected from false narratives of who they are. And when you and I remember it in that same Hebrew sense, we will reject false concepts of self, of where we find our hope and what we build our lives upon, like, like success, right? Or that we have a tendency to build our lives or build our hope or find our joy in being known and being liked by people and people looking at us and seeing us and celebrating us. See, when we find our identity and when we see the power of God as being our central hope and our central understanding, then, then these powers of the world to influence, influence our social understanding and even our self-concept are rendered impotent. See, the power of being known by God and being his people dismantles and reverses the powers of being known in this world that are here one minute and gone the next. In fact, all of these three spaces, these three influences, these three contexts and and, and places where this power uh, is being reversed really are demonstrated throughout history. See, many credit the Emperor Constantine for the rapid growth of Christianity in the ancient world, because Christianity grew from a thousand in about 40 AD to almost 6 million by 300 AD. So from 40 to 300 AD, so 260 years, Christianity grew from a thousand followers of Jesus to almost 6 million. And many credit Constantine making Christianity the official religion of the empire. But, but Constantine didn't make Christianity the official religion, because the emperor recognized uh, that Christianity, or or, or rather because the emperor wanted to make Christianity a cultural force, what history proves is that Constantine made Christianity the centerpiece of the empire spiritually because he knew that Christianity already was a cultural force. And so this growth and this power had already taken place. So it wasn't as if Christianity grew because it borrowed the powers of this world. Are you tracking with me? Christianity did not grow because the emperor caused it to grow and used his platform and his power, his social, economic, and governmental power to make Christianity grow. The emperor saw that Christianity is growing, and I better get behind this thing. In in other words, he recognized that Christianity had a power he did not possess, and therefore he makes it the centerpiece of the ancient world. And historian Larry Uh, Hurtado explains that the growth of Christianity was largely by a combination of the power of persuasion, whether in preaching, intellectual argument, miracles exhibiting the power of Jesus' name, and simply the moral suasion of Christian behavior, including martyrdom. 
Did you hear that? Persuasion, miracles, morality, martyrdom. In other words, Christianity grew through the reversal of powers, not borrowing the powers of this world or using the powers of influence that an emperor, in this case, Constantine had, but Christianity grew through the reversal of powers, the demonstration of God's power through miracles, persuasion, morality, and even people being willing to die for the cause of Christ. Church, what we need to understand, what we need to submit ourselves to today is that earthly powers do not last, and they always take more than they give. See, if you center your hope on political power, you will be humbled. If you center your life on wealth, you will be turned away empty. If you build your life on acceptance, you will be rejected. All earthly powers are reversed by God. This is what Mary is celebrating. And and this isn't just the case because these powers eventually don't work out or sooner or later they just fall apart. But rather, these do not satisfy specifically and precisely because something has taken place which has reversed the order of this world, which has come against the course and the patterns of this evil and dark age and and these effects of the principalities. Something, or rather someone, who is alive in the womb of this woman who is singing with worship and revolution in her hearts. So we've considered the way. And this power. We've looked at the where, these, these different places where this power has been reversed. And so now we need to consider what. What specifically is this power? Or, or in other words, how could this child that is growing in Mary reverse the powers of this world? Where Mary makes the basis of her claim in verse 41. Look at it again. He, that's God, has shown strength with his arm. Has shown strength with his arm. And the strength of the arm of God is a consistent and constant motif throughout the Bible. We see it in the Psalms, we see it in Isaiah, and it's actually used in the opening uh, line in the most famous chapter from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.1 says that, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is anthropomorphism. It's language, human language, used to describe a holy God so that we mere mortals could comprehend a God that we could not grasp on our own. And almost always in the Bible, when the arm of God is utilized, this motif is utilized, this metaphor is utilized, salvation is on the mind of the writer. So much, or rather with such a picture, we'd expect this kind of unmatched glory and authority and un. Uh, this force demonstrated by God, leaving enemies in his wake, leaving enemies impotent to the sovereignty of God. And in other words, when when we read about the arm of God, what may come to our minds is that he's going to take all of the earthly powers and he's going to like turn them way up. He's just going to way overpower all of these things, use their their power against them in an extraordinary and overwhelming kind of way. But please don't miss this. God does not reverse the powers of this world by using the powers of this world. In in other words, he doesn't blow away political powers by being more politically savvy and more politically powerful. God does not blow away the rich by saying, I have more money than you. God does not reverse the powers of society by saying, I'm more famous, I'm more popular, I have more cultural suasion than you do. 
right? He, he doesn't use cultural powers against culture. He doesn't use those things. He doesn't need those things. Rather, the strength of his arm, which reverses the power, is a demonstration not through greater earthly might, but most profoundly through the death of his son. See, Isaiah 53 goes on to describe the arm and power of God and and how it would be revealed in history. Isaiah writes that the Lord would be despised and rejected. Isaiah calls the Lord a man of sorrows, the one who borne our grief, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He says he was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquity. See, the arm of the Lord, the power of God, reverses the powers of this world, not by force, not by fighting power with power, but rather through love. And it's a kind of love which is unimpressed with the powers of this world. It doesn't need to mimic the powers of this world. It doesn't need to copy the powers of this world in much the same way that Christianity did not need need Constantine, nor does it need America or any government power to flourish and thrive. Jesus did not need the powers of this world in order to accomplish his powerful purposes. Am I preaching to you yet, church? Jesus is a completely different kind of power. To be sure, though, he is the king of kings. He does own a cattle on a thousand hills, and he is the most famous person who ever lived. But he doesn't need those powers. That's not where he goes. He does not fight worldly powers with the forces of worldly power. He reverses the powers of this world through the power of love. A self-giving, self-sacrificing, gracious love. See, church, the humble are exalted through divine love. and And the proud are humbled through divine love. And the strength of the arm of the Lord does this by coming in humble flesh in the form of a baby to this woman, Mary, by living humbly and perfectly, by dying in our place and for our sins. This is why John could write in 1 John 4, 18, that perfect love, what's it do? It drives out fear. Perfect love, in other words, reverses the powers of this world. And the perfect love of Christ led him to his humiliation, his, his, his willing self-humiliation, and then his exaltation. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, hear this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name, the name that is above every name. So how is it that we can trust? How is it that we can know that God does in fact exalt the humble and humble the proud? Because Jesus himself humbled himself first and the father exalted him. So the Messiah, the son born to Mary, Jesus reverses the patterns and powers of this world by humbling himself in love and church, we must do the same as the powers of this world not only persist around us but also in us. See, what Mary has seen is that God is at work in her and is at work through and for and with her people. What Mary is bearing witness to is that God is continuing the work that He has always 
done in a fresh way through her baby boy. And what you and I must see today, what we are called to experience this Advent season is that God continues to do this work and the way and the where and the what are all the same. The humble are still exalted. The the proud will still be humbled. He is still at work in the political powers of our day, in the social powers of our day, in the economic powers of our day to dismantle all of these things through the power of his sacrificial love, which one day will perfectly lay hold of this world and completely lay hold of this universe in a new heavens and new earth. And so today we need to repent. If sin is the centering of self and the trusting in the powers of this world, then repentance is the decentering of self and trusting in the power of God. Or in the words of Jesus, what do we do? We humble ourselves. He said, Jesus did in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How do you humble yourself? How do you repent? Well, I think to repent today is to repent of our infatuation and our trust with earthly powers. We've clung to government as both our ultimate problem and our ultimate hope. We've looked to money to secure our future and to lead to our happiness, and it's led to untold evils in our hearts and in our world. What evil is persisting? In your heart, what evil are you trusting? What earthly power are you trusting? Confess your sin. And in confessing, we actually humble ourselves before God and the scriptures promise. And this promise is the heart of Mary's song. If you are proud, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, God in Christ through the messianic work that he has done through his son, you will be exalted. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to believe this. Help us to rejoice in this. Help us to trust this. As we not only welcome the power of your love into our hearts, but are used by you to see the power of your love infect and affect every one of these spaces and places today. And so we ask, Father, that the power of Jesus would lay hold of the political governmental, social, and even economic realms of our world and those realms which persist in our hearts that the whole world would know the name and fame and brilliance and power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. May we trust in the power of God that reverses all earthly powers. We ask in Jesus' name.